Chapter 8 of The House on the Borderland by William Hope Hodgson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After the Attack It was now about 3 a.m., and presently the eastern sky began to pale with the coming of dawn. Gradually the day came, and by its light I scanned the gardens earnestly. But nowhere could I see any signs of the brutes. I leant over and glanced down to the foot of the wall to see whether the body of the thing I had shot the night before was still there. It was gone. I supposed that others of the monsters had removed it during the night. Then I went down onto the roof and crossed over the gap from which the coping stone had fallen. Reaching it, I looked over. Yes, there was the stone as I had seen it last. But there was no appearance of anything beneath it nor could I see the creatures I had killed after its fall. Evidently they had also been taken away. I turned and went down to my study. There I sat down wearily. I was thoroughly tired. It was quite light now, though the sun's rays were not as yet perceptibly hot. A clock chimed the hour of four. I awoke with a start and looked round hurriedly. The clock in the corner indicated that it was three o'clock. It was already afternoon. I must have slept for nearly eleven hours. With a jerky movement I sat forward in the chair and listened. The house was perfectly silent. Slowly I stood up and yawned. I felt desperately tired still and sat down again, wondering what it was that had waked me. It must have been the clock striking, I concluded presently, and was commencing to doze off when a sudden noise brought me back once more to life. It was the sound of a step as of a person moving cautiously down the corridor toward my study. In an instant I was on my feet and grasping my rifle. Noiselessly I waited. Had the creatures broken in whilst I slept? Even as I questioned, the steps reached my door, halted momentarily, and then continued down the passage. Silently I tiptoed to the doorway and peeped out. Then I experienced such a feeling of relief as must have reprieved criminal— it was my sister. She was going toward the stairs. I stepped into the hall and was about to call her when it occurred to me that it was very queer she should have crept past my door in that stealthy manner. I was puzzled, and for one brief moment the thought occupied my mind that it was not she, but some fresh mystery of the house. Then, as I caught a glimpse of her old petticoat, the thought passed as quickly as it had come, and I half-laughed. There could be no mistaking that ancient garment. Yet I wondered what she was doing and remembered her condition of mind on the previous day. I felt that it might be best to follow quietly, taking care not to alarm her, and see what she was going to do. If she behaved rationally, well and good. If not, I should have to take steps to restrain her. I could run no unnecessary risks under the danger that threatened us. Quickly I reached the head of the stairs and paused a moment. Then I heard a sound that sent me leaping down at a mad rate. It was the rattle of bolts being unshut. That foolish sister of mine was actually unbarring the back door. Just as her hand was on the last bolt, I reached her. She had not seen me, and the first thing she knew I had hold of her arm. She glanced up quickly like a frightened animal and screamed aloud. "'Come, Mary,' I said sternly. "'What's the meaning of this nonsense?' "'Do you mean to tell me you don't understand the danger? "'That you try to throw our two lives away in this fashion?' "'To this she replied nothing. 
only trembled violently, gasping and sobbing as though in the last extremity of fear. Through some minutes I reasoned with her, pointing out the need for caution and asking her to be brave. There was little to be afraid of now, I explained, and I tried to believe that I spoke the truth. But she must be sensible, and not attempt to leave the house for a few days. At last I ceased in despair. It was no use talking to her. She was obviously not quite herself for the time being. Finally, I told her she had better go to her room if she could not behave rationally. Still, she took not any notice. So, without more ado, I picked her up in my arms and carried her there. At first she screamed wildly, but had relapsed into silent trembling by the time I reached the stairs. Arriving at her room, I laid her upon the bed. She lay there quietly enough, neither speaking nor sobbing, just shaking in a very egg of fear. I took a rug from a chair nearby and spread it over her. I could do nothing more for her, and so crossed to where Pepper lay in a big basket. My sister had taken charge of him since his wound to nurse him, for it had proved more severe than I had thought, and I was pleased to note that, in spite of her state of mind, she had looked after the old dog carefully. Stooping, I spoke to him, and in reply he licked my hand feebly. He was too ill to do more. Then, going to bed, I bent over my sister and asked her how she felt. But she only shook the more, and much as it pained me. I had to admit that my presence seemed to make her worse. And so I left her, locking the door and pocketing the key. It seemed to be the only course to take. The rest of the day I spent between the tower and my study. For food I brought up a loaf from the pantry, and on this, since some claret, I lived for that day. What a long, weary day it was! If only I could have gone out into the gardens, as is my want. I should have been content enough, but to be cooped in this silent house with no companion save a mad woman and a sick dog was enough to prey upon the nerves of the hardiest. And out in the tangled shrubberies that surrounded the house lurked, for all I could tell, those infernal swine creatures waiting their chance. Was ever a man in such straits? Once in the afternoon, and again later, I went to visit my sister. The second time I found her tending Pepper, but at my approach she slid over unobtrusively to the far corner with a gesture that saddened me beyond belief. Poor girl! Her fear cut me intolerably, and I would not intrude on her unnecessarily. She would be better, I trusted, in a few days. Meanwhile I could do nothing, and I judged it still needful hard as it seemed, to keep her confined to her room. One thing there was that I took for encouragement. She had eaten some of the food I had taken to her on my first visit. And so the day passed. As the evening drew on, the air grew chilly, and I began to make preparations for passing a second night in the tower, taking up two additional rifles and a heavy ulster. The rifles I loaded and laid alongside my other, as I intended to make things warm for any of the creatures who might show during the night. I had plenty of ammunition, and I thought to give the brutes such a lesson as should show them the uselessness of attempting to force an entrance. After that I made the round of the house again, paying particular attention to the props that supported the study door. Then, feeling that I had done all that lay in my power to ensure our safety, 
I returned to the tower, calling in on my sister and Pepper for a final visit on the way. Pepper was asleep, but woke as I entered and wagged his tail in recognition. I thought he seemed slightly better. My sister was lying on the bed, though, whether asleep or not, I was unable to tell, and thus I left them. Reaching the tower, I made myself as comfortable as circumstances would permit, and settled down to watch through the night. Gradually darkness fell, and soon the details of the gardens were merged into shadows. During the first few hours I sat alert, listening for any sound that might help to tell me if anything were stirring down below. It was far too dark for my eyes to be of much use. Slowly the hours passed without anything unusual happening, and the moon rose, showing the gardens apparently empty and silent, and so through the night without disturbance or sound. Toward morning I began to grow stiff and cold with my long vigil. Also I was getting very uneasy concerning the continued quietness on the part of the creatures. I mistrusted it, and would sooner, far, have had them attack the house openly. Then at least I should have known my danger and been able to meet it. But to wait like this, through a whole night, picturing all kinds of unknown devilment, was to jeopardize one's sanity. Once or twice the thought came to me that perhaps they had gone, but in my heart I found it impossible to believe that it was so. End of chapter 8 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia